0: Most of you will remember that we are dealing at the moment with the first seven verses in the thirteenth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans, beginning with the great statement, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation, or judgment, punishment. And on the Apostle goes to elaborate that statement. Now we've been considering this for a number of weeks because it is such a a crucial and such an important statement. It's a a most illuminating statement, perhaps the most illuminating in the um, whole of the Bible, on this whole question of the relationship of the Christian, to the state, the governing powers of the country to which he belongs. This has been, as we've seen, a cause of great perplexity throughout the centuries. It was obviously a difficulty in the early church, and uh, it has continued to be a difficulty throughout the century. Now, at the moment, we are dealing with the whole question of the relationship between the church and the state. We've considered the individual Christian, now we are considering the whole question of the church in general in relationship to the state. We've taken an historical view, made a review of the history of this subject throughout the centuries. And having done that, we tried last Friday evening in a measure to evaluate all that history in the light of the teaching of the scripture. And we had to come to this conclusion that the position of those who believe either in the unity of the church and the state or a close alliance between the two is something that is based mainly, if not almost entirely exclusively, on the Old Testament scriptures, indeed at the expense of the new. That seemed to me to stand out very clearly. Now, at this point, I think it might be advantageous before we come to deal with any particular problems or questions that confront uh, the individual Christian and the Church at the present time. I think it would be helpful, perhaps and convenient for me to try to sum up at this point the things we have been considering together. So I would suggest the following conclusions. One, that the Church and State in New Testament teachings are entirely distinct, and uh, that there is no warrant from the New Testament teaching whatsoever for either controlling the other. No warrant for the Church controlling the state, as the Roman Catholic Church has done and would always like to do, but equally no warrant for the state controlling the Church, as happens under Erastianism and every state church. Secondly, we surely must have seen together something of the danger of trying to put the new wine of the gospel and the new dispensation into the old bottles of the Old Testament and Old Testament teaching, and are failing to see as we do that the uniqueness. Of the position of the children of Israel. For there, the state and church consisted of the same people. But we were trying to show last week that that was something that was unique and special and which no longer obtains. Thirdly, I trust it's been clear that what happened at the time of Constantine was not only a departure from the New Testament teaching, but also a departure from the practice of the early Church. That, I think, is the most crucial point. It has been the failure to realize that that has accounted for so much of the history that we've been considering. So my fourth general conclusion is this, that it's quite clear historically that the Roman Catholic Church perpetuated that which began in the time of Constantine, except that it was able, as its power increased and Rome Uh, continued to decline and to fall until ultimately she was conquered by the barbarians, Rome then succeeded in reversing the position and she began to dominate the life of the state. But as regards the principle of the unity of the two, that remained, of course, constant. But the Roman Catholic Church perpetuated that. And I think it's also clear, I trust it is, that the Protestant Reformers, likewise, Perpetuated this precise error also. They really didn't face it. They just took it over and assumed it without examining it as they should have done. And that this was true not only of the Protestant Reformers but of their descendants, even including the Puritans in this country. And it took what happened in 1662, at the time of the great eject- ejection, to awaken people truly to this whole matter. Now, I remember many months ago recommending a book called The Reformers and Their Stepchildren. It's very helpful and illuminating just on this very subject. So I would recommend that book once more. It is a study of this particular point showing in in a particularly clear way how the Reformers went astray at this point through taking over the whole notion of the State Church Association. It, it, it of course, appeared at that time mainly in their opposition to the people who were called Anabaptists. The Anabaptists were guilty of many excesses. No one would defend them for that. But on this particular principle, they stood for something which it took uh, well over a century for people in this country to see with any kind of clarity. Well, that book then does help us to understand that matter. Well, now, there are the general conclusions. But what I'm really concerned about is this. Somebody may say to me at this point, what has all this got to do with us? Well, now, I'm trying again to show that this has everything to do with us. Because you and I are once more put into a position where all these things that we've been considering are of the most urgent importance for us. Whether we like it or not, whether we even want it or not, we are in that position. We happen to be living in an age which is one of the great turning points of history, not only in the world in general, but also in the history of the Christian church. Great decisions have been taken, are being taken, and in the next few years will be taken, and will be taken with increasing rapidity. And we're all involved in this. Whether we like it or not, these things are going to happen. So if you do nothing, the decisions will be taken for you, and you'll find yourself facing a fate accompli. Well, that is something which I think we should all denounce. It is the business of Christian people to know what they're doing. We are made severally members of the body of Christ. We are given a position in the body of Christ, and it behoves us all to acquaint ourselves not only with the scriptural teaching, but also with the facts what is happening round and about us, so that as we are called upon to take our decisions, we shall know what we are doing. Now, therefore, there are certain lessons, it seems to me, that come to us very plainly from what we've been considering of the history of the Church in this matter, especially as we have looked at it in the light of the teaching of the Scripture itself. What are these lessons? Well, I would say the first is this. The terrible danger of traditionalism. Traditionalism. Now, you notice I'm not saying the danger of tradition. I am saying the danger of traditionalism. What is the difference between tradition and traditionalism? Well, it is this tradition, in and of itself, is something that is good. A man who dismisses the whole of the past is behaving in a very foolish manner. I know there are many people who are doing that today. Indeed, it is perhaps one of the most uh, foolish and ridiculous aspects of modern life that people are tending to assume that all that's happened in the past is quite irrelevant and unimportant, and that nobody knew anything until this present generation came. People who dismiss the past are just displaying ignorance and a lack of intelligence. Let's put it quite plainly, it is nothing but that. Any man who thinks at all and who has any experience of life uh, soon begins to realize that life is something very big and very difficult. And he is grateful for any light or help or information and instruction that he can receive from the past, from those who've gone before us. And of course, as Christians, we know we start with this basic assumption that the world doesn't change. The world thinks it does. It is a part of our very belief to believe and to say that the world does not change. That ever since the fall of man, that the world has not changed. Changes, of course, on the surface, in its dress, its appearance, in some of its customs and habits, but basically, man in sin does not change at all. He commits the same sins, he falls into the same errors, he repeats the same heresies, and so on. Therefore, starting from that assumption, What can be more important for us than to learn from the past? Very well, we do so by considering the traditions which we've inherited. We should thank God for every uh, tradition, and we should make full use of it, we should familiarize ourselves with it, and learn lessons from it. I've often had to say this, To me, one of the most extraordinary things, and particularly in evangelical circles at this point, is the way in which people are innocent and ignorant of the great evangelical story of the centuries. In sheer ignorance, many seem to think that evangelicalism began in this country with the arrival of D.L. Moody in 1873. Now, that's sheer ignorance, and many of our troubles. And our failures in the realm of the church have arisen directly from that ignorance. Very well. Let's acquaint ourselves with the past as we've been trying to do, and let us learn everything we can from it. That is the right use of tradition. But traditionalism is something very different. Something very dangerous. Something that is condemned in the Bible itself. What do I mean by a traditional ism? Well, it's the same with most isms. It is uh, the tendency to exalt a teaching into something absolute, which becomes a legalism and eventually paralyzes our thinking. I could illustrate the difference, if you like, between tradition and traditionalism. By pointing out the exact parallel between a legitimate pride of nation and of national nationality on the one hand and nationalism on the other hand. Nationalism is something really bad. but uh, to take pride in one's nation, and so on is something which is not only legitimate, it is something uh, which is uh, w- which is good. But the moment it becomes an ism, it becomes the greatest possible source of error and of trouble. And so many of the problems we've had to face and so many of the tragedies we've had to face in this present century have been entirely due to national ism, and it may very well be the greatest source of trouble for the remainder of this century. Now that's the kind of illustration of the difference between traditional and traditional ism. But let me put it to you in the form in which we find it in the scripture. Take what we have read together at the beginning from the 15th chapter of the gospel according to St. Matthew. What you have there is our Lord's denunciation of the traditional ism of the Pharisees and the scribes. What he judges them with is this, that they have made the word of God of none effect through their traditions. Now this this is the most important matter. Remember the Pharisees were religious people. They were the religious teachers. They were very serious people. This was their life. They believed of all men that they were honoring God and living to their glory. As Paul says of them, they have a zeal they have a zeal of God. Now it's a very great mistake to think of the Pharisee as a dishonest man. I know the literary writers have tended to give us that impression of the Pharisee, but it's quite wrong. The trouble with the Pharisee was that he fooled himself. The Pharisee is not a man who deliberately sets out to fool others. The whole tragedy of the poor Pharisee is that he fools himself and doesn't realize what he's doing. And it's a very insidious and a very subtle process. You see, what happened was this. These men studied their scriptures, and they made comments on it. And so, a body of doctrine and of teaching came into being. Now, they had no intention of going wrong whatsoever. Their intention was absolutely right and good. They were there to explain and to expand the scriptures. But, in doing that, and in accumulating this teaching, a tradition developed. And what our Lord says of them is this that they had reached a point when really the teaching of the word of God was being entirely obscured. And they were spending the whole of the time with their tradition. That's the charge that he brings against them. He said, you claim to be teachers, but you're not teachers of the word, you are hiding the word. You're standing between the people and the word. Your traditions, the traditions of the elders, you're always saying it hath been said, and you're quoting your authorities. That is what they did. So that the people were not brought face to face with the law of God and the teaching of the scriptures. But here were these clever expert men comparing this view and that, putting up the rival schools amongst the Pharisees, and so on, and spending the whole of their time in this abstruse intellectualism. The common people, were not being instructed. They were not being taught. That was why when our Lord came and taught the people plainly and directly, we are told the common people heard him gladly. Of course, they couldn't follow these others. It was all intellectualism. And the word of God was being concealed. But our Lord was revealing and bringing out the word of God to them. Now, that is our Lord's way of dealing with this very thing to which I'm calling your attention. The tradition had become traditional-ism, and it had become so important that it was concealing the truth. This is the most terrible thing. We're all subject to this, and this is, I trust, the great lesson, that we're all prepared to learn. Because if we don't, we are not only going to miss a great opportunity, which I believe is being presented to us as Christian people at the present time, I mean evangelical people in particular, but we are going to make grievous mistakes, and we are going to hinder the propagation of the gospel. What what happens then? Well this is what happens with traditionalism always. This body of teaching, which has come into being in the way I have described to you, becomes fixed, it becomes set, it becomes hardened, it becomes ossified, if you like, and becomes quite rigid. And the people who are influenced by this and dominated by it, they are people generally who refuse to consider anything else. Now that was exactly why the Pharisees wouldn't listen to our Lord. You see, he didn't fit in to their scheme of things, into their teaching, into their outlook, into their tradition, therefore they objected to him, they denounced him, and eventually they encompassed his death. This is, this is something that always happens to the victims of traditional ism. Their minds are shut, they're closed. They won't even listen to anything else at all. Now, there is no question in my mind that in many cases, it is entirely due to a spirit of fear. They're afraid. You see, they've got a set, fixed system, a square, as it were, of doctrine and of truth and they're terrified that if they open that at all they may lose everything so in a spirit of fear they say you defend the lot they won't listen to anything now let me illustrate what I mean I remember a man long since gone to the glory who used to attend here very regularly and I remember very well when I was giving some lectures on biblical doctrines and dealing with the doctrine of the last things he came and listened and it was quite obvious that uh, as he listened to the exposition and to the arguments and so on that he was beginning to see that the position he'd occupied for 50 years was really not as tenable as he thought it was. But I remember him telling me, once rather jocularly on one occasion, he said, you know, I'm too old to change now. You see, he felt that having had this system and having taught it even for so many years, even though the other thing that I was saying may be right and true, He was too old to change. Now, thank God, our salvation doesn't depend upon our understanding. But you see the pathetic position we can get into. That because of some such spirit of fear, I've even known people stay away from meetings when they know that a point of view that doesn't tally with what they've always believed and been brought up in is being put forward. They just are afraid to listen to it. Now, my dear friends, can't you see how reprehensible this is? It's very easy for us to denounce Roman Catholics. We say those people are just uh, traditionalists. Instead of going to the scriptures, they say, what does the church teach? They put the teaching of the church, the tradition of the church, before the teaching of the scripture. That's the Protestant charge against Roman Catholics. That the poor Roman Catholics are not given the truth, that they have given all this church teaching about Mary and the saints and works of supererogation and all the things that they've accumulated by way of tradition throughout the centuries. It's very true, of course. And all they're taught about the saints. There are many innocent, ignorant Roman Catholic people who know much more about particular saints than they know about the scriptures. They can be woefully ignorant of the teaching of the scriptures, but they know all this that the church has taught them. It's how simple for us to denounce it and to see the error of it. But how difficult for us to see that we are often guilty of doing precisely and exactly the same thing. We've got the same kind of shut and of closed mind. Now this is always typical of traditionalism. It is surely quite as wrong for us to adopt the position, my denomination right or wrong, as it is to say my country right or wrong. Now, you don't think much of a man who says, my country right or wrong. My country can never make a mistake. That's what breeds war. That's where wars come from, that people are foolish enough and unintelligent to say that my country right or wrong, my country can never be wrong. That's what it comes to. Now, to say that, I say, is foolish. But remember, The world is full of people who are saying the same thing in the religious realm. The denomination I've been brought up in, I'll fight to it to my last breath. Why? Well, because it's my denomination. Exactly the same spirit. There is no difference whatsoever. This also shows itself in another way. There is always the danger of regarding the fathers as divinely inspired and infallible. No, we as Protestants we object to the doctrine uh, of papal infallibility. We don't believe that. We don't believe in an infallible church or an infallible pope at the head of it. And we are very strong on this. But I have known many Protestant people who unconsciously and quite unintentionally have turned John Calvin into a pope. You mustn't criticize John Calvin. Not even on a detail. This is, this comes out in reviews. I've read two reviews of the book I've just been recommending, The Reformers and Their Stepchildren. Neither of them gave any account of the contents of the book, but what they took up was there were criticisms of Calvin in that book, and they fixed on this. Calvin can never be wrong. You mustn't breathe any suspicion of a criticism of John Calvin. My dear friends, that's to turn John Calvin into a pope. And that is to be guilty of traditionalism. And it applies not only to men. But it applies also to books and to documents. Now, there are people, there's no question about this, and simply illustrating this point. I've known people who, obviously, again unconsciously, regarded the notes in what is called the Schofield Bible as being as inspired and as infallible as the text of the Scripture. They have argued on this basis. This can't be wrong. It's in the Bible. The notes are as infallible as the text of the scripture itself. But you see, I have also known people who obviously regard the Westminster Confession as being divinely inspired and infallible, and that it must never be criticized. You see, on all sides, whatever view you may happen to take, there is always this danger of falling under the tyranny of traditional ism of being entirely governed by the teaching of one man or one book or one system or something like that. Now these are but ways in which this spirit of traditionalism manifests itself. And you can see the importance and the relevance of all this to the present position. We are living at a time when this so-called ecumenical movement is calling upon people to learn into one great world church. It's calling upon people, therefore, not to hold rigidly to that which they've been brought up in, but to think again. Now, what are we to say about this? Well, the tragedy is, you see, that so many people facing that kind of position, instead of evaluating it all in the light of the scripture, and seeing the evangelical position, and coming together to stand for that, are much more concerned to defend the position they're already in. Always being brought up in it. Fathers and grandfathers, way back, all my family always belong to this particular denominator. So they're not open to the truth. Their minds are shut. They're not prepared to change. They're not prepared to admit that perhaps their fathers were wrong and that they themselves have been wrong. All I'm asking for is this. that surely in the light of our consideration of the history of this matter of church and state, we should have arrived at this general principle that it is possible for any of us and all of us to go astray, to be in error at certain points, that we must not regard anything that the church has ever done as being infallible. We must rather examine all things in the light of the teaching of the scripture, whatever the consequences, and be ready to act upon what we find. Now then, in exalting you to that, I am actually doing the very self-same thing that the Reformers did themselves. You see, this was the gigantic thing that was done by Martin Luther. Here is a man who, having seen the truth in the Scriptures, is prepared to stand up against fifteen centuries of tradition. That's the very thing I'm advocating. But, of course, we know that since then Luther himself has been turned into a Pope by many sections of the Lutheran Church. But Luther and Calvin and these other reformers, they were not bound by everything that was decided in the early ecumenical councils of the Church. They were critical of these councils, and they didn't hesitate to say so. And in the same way, they were ready to criticize the fathers. It was one of the great bones of contention between them and the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Church was quoting the councils, quoting the fathers. But the Reformers said, look here, but what does the Scripture say? Even the fathers, the early fathers of the Church, not only could go astray, but patently did go astray. We therefore mustn't slavishly accept everything that tradition brings down to us. We must say, well, let's examine it. It's helpful, but let's examine it in the light of the Scripture, and then, having looked at it in that way, let us decide what we must do. Now, that is the thing which I trust has become clear to all of us. There is nothing which is more regrettable than that people should just be defending the position they're in. and They refuse to consider, they're afraid to keep their minds open. The Christian should have an open mind in this sense that he's not bound by tradition. He's open only to the scripture and he evaluates all else in the light of that and his understanding of it. I do trust that as we've been examining this matter of the relationship between the church and the state and have seen how our great forefathers unconsciously took over a tradition instead of evaluating in the light of the scriptures that we must beware of that error. Because if we don't realize this and if we are all going to adhere simply to the denomination in which we were brought up and to hold on to this at all costs, well, what most of you will find is you'll end sooner than you think in the church of Rome or else you'll be divided into such little fragments that you'll neither count in the church nor amongst those who are outside the church. At a time like this when we are told that everything is in the melting pot let us take advantage of it. Let's learn from the scriptures. Let's learn from the past. And let us come to decisions in the light of the Scripture and adhere to it resolutely, and be ready, if necessary, to suffer for it, but above all, to be determined to put it into practice together. I feel that this matter has got a very, very great lesson for us to learn just at this present time. Very well. There are our general lessons, which I trust we are all prepared to consider very seriously and very prayerfully. Then, having done that, I ask, well then, what is the position? What is the position with regard to this whole question of the relationship of the church and the state? It seems to me that it all boils down to one question. What is the function of the state? Now, in a sense, we considered that before Christmas. But we've got to come back and look at it again in the light of this problem of this particular relationship. And there are two questions which arise as you face that. The fundamental question is, what is the function of the church? There are two subsidiary questions which will help to throw light on that. Here is the first. Is the function of the state anything more than negative? Is the state to have any positive function at all, or is it entirely negative? Now, you consult this particular paragraph that we are looking at, and I think you'll have to come to the conclusion that it is entirely negative. You read the first epistle to Timothy, chapter 2, and there you remember what the apostle teaches us, teaches Timothy in order that he may teach others. He says, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. That's the function of the state, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. And if you take the passage in the first epistle of Peter and chapter 2, and I think you'll find that it is exactly the same thing, where Peter says that the business of the governors, kings, state, whatever it may be, is the punishment of evildoers and the praise of them that do well. Now, the three passages, the three New Testament passages that deal with this, seem to leave it at that. But, that raises the second subsidiary question. There are those who say, but surely, you haven't considered this whole doctrine of common grace. That when men fell, and all men became sinful, God dealt with some and deals with some by his special grace, his peculiar grace, his saving grace, but he hasn't ceased to have any dealings with the others. He deals with the others by means of what is called common grace. The world is still God's world, God hasn't abandoned the world, and God through the Holy Spirit is doing something even to the unregenerate world. They say, what of that? And not only that, they say the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of the universe. He said himself, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. We are told that all things were created for him, by him and for him, and that by him all things consist, and that he is over all, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that can be named not only in this world, but in the world to come. What about the Lordship of Christ over the whole of life? Now, these people say that this teaching, this combined teaching, if you like, of common grace and of the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ means that this is to show itself, even in the life of unregenerate people, and that it is a part of the business and the duty of the state to do this. Now, these are the two things that we really have got to consider. These, therefore, assert, these second people assert that it is the business of uh, the church to remind the state of this, and it is the business of the state, to bring into being the lordship of Christ over the whole of life. They say that, uh, therefore, there is a sense in which it is the business of the state to Christianize society that it is to bring to bear the Christian teaching upon every realm and aspect of life and all the affairs of men. They say it is wrong for the church to withdraw from all this and to abandon all this. It is rather, because of the powers that be are ordained of God, it is rather their business to assert the lordship of God and the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ over the whole of life so that the state is to introduce these Christian ideas, into the thinking of people. And so they talk, you see, about winning the world for Christ, winning culture for Christ, winning everything for Christ. And they would say that this is to be a gradual process, that the Christian teaching is to act as a leaven in society, and that as it does permeate the life of the world, well, that aspects of the life of the world will be captured from the devil. And the Lordship of God and of His Christ will become more and more evident in the various parts of life. Now, this was a teaching that was extremely popular, especially towards the end of the last century and the early part of this present century. There were certain well known teachers who taught this in this country. There was an Anglican teacher, a great man of the name of F.T. Morris, he taught it. Canon Scott Hollander used to be it towards the end of the last century in St. Paul's Cathedral. The famous Bishop Gore, and afterwards Archbishop William Temple. They were the people who presented this point of view, particularly in this country. But it hasn't been confined to them and to Anglicans. You've had people in other countries teaching much the same thing. There was a great man in Holland of the name of Abram Kuyper, who many of you know about his famous lectures on Calvinism. Here was a man who was brought up in the Dutch Reformed Church, Began to see that that state church had been going astray in certain respects, and uh, with others began a new denomination, as it were. But he was an ordained minister in the church, but eventually he gave that up and entered into politics, and he actually became the prime minister of Holland. And this was his essential teaching, that you should bring the lordship of God and of Christ to bear upon the whole of life. So... He started a Christian university in Amsterdam. It's known as the Free University of Amsterdam. He he and others started a political party to propagate these things, and they believe in Christian schools and in bringing the influence of the Christian teaching to bear upon the whole of life. Now, this is the question. Which of these two views do you take? The first view which says that the function of the state is almost entirely negative. Or this other one which makes the function of the state very positive. And that indeed you can even use such terms as the Christianizing of life and of society. Now these are the things that we've got to look at hurriedly together. So I would put certain considerations to you, to you in this, this form. First, I would say that it is always wrong to talk about Christianizing anything. I would describe that as heresy. There is no such thing as Christianizing anything. In other words, you are either a Christian or you are not a Christian. It is only the Christian who can live the Christian life. It is only the Christian who can understand the Christian teaching. So whatever you may do to unregenerate men and to society, though you may change its mode of living, and I'm entirely in agreement with that, you must not use the term Christianize. That you persuade people to live in a certain way is a good thing, but you mustn't say that they're living as Christians, because they cannot do so. To say that a man can live the Christian life in any shape or form without being born again, without becoming a Christian, I would have thought, is the very essence of the Pelagian heresy. So that is the first thing. Secondly, it is surely quite wrong in the light of the teaching of the scripture to talk of Christ's lordship and his kingdom as coming gradually. Now this is the most important part. There are those who would use the parable, our Lord's parable of the leaven. You remember one of his parables of the kingdom was that it's like unto a woman who takes some leaven and puts it into the meal, and it gradually leavens it until the whole was leavened. That's been used tremendously as an argument in the last hundred years or so to say that that's how Christianity works. It works and works in society until eventually the whole has become Christian. But I am here to contend that there is a serious misunderstanding of the parable of the leaven, because it brings it into actual contradiction with other plain statements of our Lord himself in other parts of the scripture. Take, for instance, this, in the 17th chapter of Luke's Gospel, beginning at verse 20. When he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, Neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. And he said unto his disciples, the days will come when ye shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Men, and ye shall not see it. And they shall say to you, see here or see there, go not after them nor follow them, for as the lightning that lighteneth unto the one part unto heaven shineth unto the other part unto him, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, even so shall it be in the days of the son of men. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also as it was in the days of Lot. They did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built it. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now surely these things are perfectly plain and are perfectly clear. And don't you remember that famous question that our Lord put? When the Son of Man is come, shall he find faith on the earth? It's a tremendous and a staggering question. In other words, our Lord's picture of the end time immediately before his reappearing is this. The things will be so bad, even in the church, that you can ask that question. When the Son of Man is come, shall he find faith on the earth? And if it is to be like that with the church, well, what will the condition of the world be well, our Lord has told us the condition of the world will be similar to that which in which it was before the flood or before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So far from this teaching leavening and gradually permeating and Christianizing the life of the unregenerate world and of society, our Lord's own teaching is that it's the exact opposite of it. But of course, when you read the book of Revelation, you get exactly the same impression. You see terrible conditions, great suffering, the world giving itself to evil. Read again chapters 17 and 18 of the book of Revelation. And it is the exact opposite of this idea that Christianity is going to permeate society. Now, it's very interesting to notice that this teaching, which I'm referring to, was very popular, as I said, towards the end of the last century. I think that is what misled these good men. You see, there had been peace, more or less, since the Napoleonic Wars. There had been the Crimean War, but it was a kind of incident. There had been that great era of peace. And knowledge was advancing, education coming, science developing, and they were all optimistic. The world really was at last. And they could see the missionary societies active, and the whole world was going to be one for Christ men prominent in the student movement, the pioneer movement amongst the students, they had a great slogan, the Christianizing the world in our generation, in one generation. It looked as if it was going to happen, but of course it only looked like that to people who were being misled by appearances rather than by the teaching of the scripture. But that is what they believed. It was all going to happen, it was working like leaven, and eventually. The whole of society was going to be Christianized. But you see, the the teaching of the Scripture is the exact opposite. It is teaching which tells us that the end will come suddenly. It'll come unexpectedly. It'll be crisis. It'll be judgment. It'll be apocalypse. No, no. The teaching of the Scripture is that these two kingdoms are eternally different. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil. It's a conflict between them. And there is nothing that is going to bring it to an end, except the second coming and the glorious appearing of our great Lord and Savior. That's the teaching of the scripture. But as I close this evening, let me point out to you that that teaching of the scripture is abundantly confirmed by history itself. What do you find in history? Has the Christian church Has the teaching of Christian men who have been in politics and in these matters, has it been gradually acting as a leaven? Have these principles, has the lordship of Christ been more and more asserted and become more and more evident in the life even of the unregenerate world? Well, there's only one answer to give historically to that question, and it is this, that far from your having a gradual development and improvement, What you actually have is a kind of periodicity, a rise and a fall. Whenever you get a great revival of religion, a spiritual revival, you will always find that the whole of the country where the revival has been derives benefit from it. I've often pointed this out. It can be pointed out quite plainly and clearly that every time there has been a great religious awakening in this country, there have always been Moral improvements, ethical improvements, improvements in other respects. Education has had a stimulus. Hospitals, good deeds, the abolition of slavery came directly as a consequence of the evangelical awakening. There's no question about these things. The trade union movement came directly out of that same evangelical awakening, and so on. The Victorian period is to be explained primarily in the light of the great evangelical awakening of the 18th century. The same was true in the Puritan era and so on. In other words, when there has been a great revival, there has been a general influence of Christian teaching upon the whole of society, even those who are not regenerate. It hasn't Christianized them, but it has modified their conduct and their behaviour. And that has lasted for a while, but it has never been permanent. Never. And that is the thing that I'm anxious to impress upon you. It has only been a temporary improvement. Take, for instance, the Puritan period. Leading to the Commonwealth of Cromwell and these various acts of Parliament about the Sabbath and so on that are still on the statute book and about which there's a lot of discussion at the present time. Now all that got onto the statute book as the result of that religious, spiritual awakening and quickening. But you remember that it was very soon followed by one of the most dissolute and evil periods in the whole of the history of this country. Everything that the names Restoration and Charles II stand for. But we needn't go back into history. Look at the condition of this country morally, socially, artistically, and in every other respect at the present time. You see, it all looked so different 60 and 70 years ago. Everything seemed to be going upwards. So these men were optimistic. But look at it Today. I wonder what they'd say if they could return now. I wonder whether they'd give us the same optimistic teaching. No, no. Whatever benefits that accrue to the world outside Christ, whatever they may be, they're always only temporary. You have these brighter, greater, better periods followed by periods of degradation, degeneration, and often even vileness. There is no greater fallacy than the fallacy of thinking that you can permeate the whole life of society by Christian teaching. It's not only opposed, I suggest to you, to the teaching of our Lord himself and the teaching of the apostles and particularly the book of Revelation. It is something that is negatived entirely and completely by the long history of man and of civilization and of the nations. Well, we must leave it, I fear, at that for this evening. We have just a few more general points and principles to lay down again, and then we can apply all this to some of the particular questions that are agitating people's minds at the present time. Let us pray. O Lord, O God, we come unto thee once more. We are more amazed than ever, O Lord, that Thou hast committed these things unto us, that Thou hast made Thy people guardians and custodians of the faith. And yet we know, O Lord, Thy ways are perfect, and we thank Thee that Thou dost overrule us, our errors and our mistakes and our fallacies. And we rejoice in the certain knowledge that whatever may be happening at this present time, that Thine ultimate purpose is sure and safe and certain. O Lord, receive our prayers, and continue we humbly beseech Thee to deal with us by Thy Spirit and to give us enlightenment and understanding. Above all, we humbly pray Thee, open our eyes to the present position, to the present possibilities for Thy people, O God, deliver us from traditionalism and keep us true and steadfast and loyal only to thy word. Hear us, O Lord, have mercy upon us in our weakness and our many frailties and keep us, we humbly beseech thee, from the various pitfalls into which so many have fallen in ages past. Men whose memories we revere, Lord, have mercy upon us, and ever keep us, we pray thee, to that simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. Hear us, O Lord, in this our prayer. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us, now this night, throughout the remainder of of this our short and certain earthly life and pilgrimage and evermore. Amen.